Welcome to Speaking Out. Keep that tradition going. The world from an Indigenous perspective. With Larissa Barrett. And we stand together as one. On ABC Local Radio. Hello and welcome to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barrett. Tonight we hear from two wonderful women. Carol Rowe is fighting for justice for her family. You keep fighting, fighting, and I'll stand on the plate with you and help you too. We need all to pull together, all us blackfellas, come on. we all got to stop this death and custody on the street, anywhere they kill our kids. And the other, Auntie Elsie Heiss, shows us how she links her Catholicism with her spirituality this Easter. God of the holy dreaming, great creator spirit, from the dawn of creation you have given your children good things of Mother Earth. Those stories are coming up, but first let's delve into the latest issues that have got Indigenous Australia talking. And joining me on our panel this week are Jeff Scott, CEO of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, Pat Turner AM, a community leader and sort of retired senior public servant, and journalist and media change activist Philippa McDermott. Welcome to you all. It's great to have you on the panel this week because one of the issues that everyone's been talking about is the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which uh, had had a Senate inquiry report come down. And it's, I think, something that we can really delve into. Pat, this was a new way that the government put forward of funding Indigenous community organisations. And you were kind of there in the thick of it in Alice Springs, working in organisations on the ground when the advancement strategy got rolled out. What were some of your um, initial concerns and the biggest impact on the ground from this new approach? Well, the initial concerns related to the whole process and there was so much confusion, even with the local staff who worked for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet could not clarify things for us. And when we were told to ring Canberra, and ask questions, neither could they. So they really didn't know what they were doing in Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is a shame. Um, And once the... uh, First of all, it was delayed for a long time. Um, The closing date was in October 2014, and then they moved it. They said it would take, um, you know, a bit longer... So I think we got the decisions around March, April. Can you just explain for people, you're on the ground there in Alice Springs giving guidance and helping run key community organisations. What's the impact of delays and lack of clarity around funding for these community organisations? Well, the lack of clarity, you know, meant that people had to do multiple submissions, apply under multiple headings, even though they said... You know, it was jobs in remote communities or it was um, this or that, the five program headings that they had. Um, They in themselves were quite restrictive. I didn't mind that they were trying to streamline the programs, um, but I think that was all for show because I think behind the scenes in Canberra they were still, you know, handling programs on a minute level. So they probably had a hundred, hundreds of programs, uh, streams within the department. Prime Minister and Cabinet, historically, has never been a line funding department. It's always been a coordinating department, so it's really got very limited experience in dealing with these matters. 
unlike other departments that handle grant funding all the time. The impact on the ground was that many organisations received nowhere near the budgets that they sought. Um, for example, IAD, uh, an organisation of which I was chair and I'm now deputy chair, applied for you know, almost $4 million and they offered us, in the first instance, something like 280000 you know, with yes, just yeah. a joke, yeah. you know. Um, but I'm sure that the others, uh, Jeff will have comments on that and, and perhaps Philippa mm. will too. But the most annoying thing was they sent so many uh, uh, of, so much of the money was awarded by a tender process, mm. which wasn't clear to us. Mm. And um, the short-term nature of the funding um, was also, uh, you know, handicapped us in terms of forward planning. So instead of getting at least triennial funding mm. over a period of three years, you know, it's it's this hand-to-mouth mm. um, feeding, yeah. um, you know, on a drip. On organisations that are already doing it tough. Jeff, Congress was also very critical of the way this... Um, Indigenous Advancement Strategy was rolled out. What were some of your key issues with it? Well, we were talking to the to Prime Minister and Cabinet for months before it was rolled out. And we are also talking to a number of organisations around the country. And it's the same thing Pat was just talking about. The uh, public servants didn't know what they were doing, and neither the minister, by all accounts. And it was an unmitigated disaster. Mm-hmm. And it can only be described as maladministration of immense proportions, and we shouldn't let it get away from that. Yeah, and I it's mean, still... It's still going to be that. The Senate, the, the Senate report that's coming out has made a number of recommendations, but um, you know, they're, they're going to just dress the dog up. It's still a dog mm. of a policy. I might get back to you on the actual uh, comments that have been made by that report. But, uh, Philippa, Pat makes the point that this is one of the big shifts in this strategy was to move everything out of all mm. the departments to streamline it through Prime Minister and Cabinet. What are your thoughts about that? Is it better to have Indigenous affairs close to where the leader mm. is or, or is it better to have it um, in specialised departments? Well, I think there's a there's a few issues there, Larissa, and I probably have to preface what I'm saying with <laughs> was that I was actually a public servant at the time um, in, a, in a government department and one of those departments um, that was rolled into the whole strategy. I was actually in the midst of leaving when it all happened. So I know from, from, from that perspective there was a lot of confusion the agency that I was in was actually a program agency that had rolled out programs forever and ever and was was an expert at that. So sending it up to PM&C, they were actually trying to advise PM&C how to go about it. But the other issue was that most of the, the programs that were rolled into the AIS were um, administered at a local and a state and level. So, you know, you didn't have this bottleneck of decision-making that all ended up in Canberra. So it was sort of a flatter structure. So the states were actually sort of, you know, making the decisions and, and, and um, you know, and, and, and um, confirming or what have you, the grants that were going out and they were rolling them out, you know, at that level. So, so, so that got compounded, like the, the delays, I think, that happened got compounded by having then Canberra um, to sign everything off, literally the minister was signing everything off, and they had sort of de, they had deconstructed that previously, and then now they kind of rebuilt, you know, this ridiculous uh, model where 
everything was, you know, um, funneled into into PM and C, and then the um, and the minister was signing things off. You know, small amounts of money even. So the whole thing was a disaster, I would say. Actually, going back to you, Jeff, you mentioned the Senate report. Um, we've discussed a little bit about what was wrong about the process and the impact that had on community organisations, as as Pat was explaining. One of the things that's come out of this report is to actually identify that a lot of the money that was given out went to non-Indigenous organisations. What were some of the other things that came out of the report that uh, you noted and were, were perhaps consistent with things you'd observed or didn't go far enough? Well, I think we go back to the fundamentals of the whole, of the whole IES strategy. The Senate investigation was supposed to look at the evidence base and analysis underlying the strategy. It didn't do that. That's why we're a bit critical of it. It didn't look at the implementation guidelines and made no comment on Aboriginal policy. So from that area, we were a little bit disappointed with it. It made a number of recommendations in terms of trying to streamline the, the information, get it clear and concise so people understood what they were doing, what the timeframes were and what they could expect. And in fact, they backed the issue of the new guidelines this week and they're worse than the last ones. So they, that's where they are. Yep. But again, it's just the, the, totally the uncertainty that, that it rises and the anxiety amongst everyone involved. And uh, we had an agreement with, with many of the, the, um, the bigger non-Indigenous NGOs, Ningos we call them, and they, uh, they, they said they weren't going to put, you know, put in bids for these and, and, um, and under, undermine Aboriginal organisations, but they did. And a great proportion of those programs are now administered away from the community in offices down, down in, in the capital cities, and again, it's been a detriment to it. Yeah. And if you look I'd at like to comment on yeah. that too, Louisa. Yes, um, The... The fact that uh, organisations like the AFL and Swimming Australia and um, other major sporting bodies are getting funding that's supposed to be used for disadvantaged Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is just horrendous in my view. But there are so many of these Ningos, as Jeff says, the non-Indigenous NGOs, that have taken up so much of the space that we have always occupied as Aboriginal community controlled organisations and you know all they do is employ a few local Aboriginal staff and you know but they came to the Aboriginal organisations in the first instances to find out you know the approaches that were used and and mm. so on. Took but, your knowledge. Yeah. Well you know they do it all the time and we were very cross about this and I made it very clear to them that you know we weren't going to tell them and we didn't agree that they should be moving into our space like there's plenty of other poor um, communities around Australia that they could be helping none as poor as ours of course but this whole business of the government rewarding these non-indigenous organizations whether they be multi-billion dollar organizations like the AFL or whether they be one of these ningos um, that, you know, uh, try to do the service delivery and very welfare-oriented and very paternalistic. Mm. Um, when I looked at the funding, it was like going back to the, you know, the 50s and the 60s um, in terms of the approach that was being taken. So very little incentive for Aboriginal economic development for Aboriginal job creation where it's really needed 
And for programs like ours um, in, at IAD, where we have a foundation skills to get people job ready, mm. and one of the biggest issues is numeracy and literacy. We even have, you know, I don't know of over 50 Aboriginal kids who've graduated from high school in Alice Springs who are illiterate and innumerate, and yet they graduated from year 12. Mm. So we've still got major issues with people learning literacy and numeracy, but we don't get funded. You know, we had to scream and kick and fight to get the additional funds and, it's, and we're barely limping along. I was thinking that as I was listening to you talk about the, the real undermining of Indigenous community organisations. Mm. For the last couple of weeks on the show, we've been talking about the importance of closing the gap and why aren't we doing it? And it does seem to be that there's a, a bit of correlation. Um, Pat, I was going to ask you as well. I mean, you've been a senior public servant um, running mm-hmm. uh, departments like Centrelink. Um, Jeff's already raised the issue that the guidelines now aren't much clearer, kind of indicating that there's continuing concern with the way this strategy is rolling out, despite the Senate inquiry. But if you had the ear of the Prime Minister and you could take a um, blank slate, what are some of the principles that you think should be guiding the distribution of funds for Indigenous organisations? Well, first of all, I'd want Indigenous control. Um, I believe that we need to have regional authorities around Australia, like the Torres Strait has got, and uh, that the chairs and deputy chairs of the regional authority, it's got to be 50-50 men and women elected. Um, otherwise, you know, it's not true representation in my view. That is one thing I would mandate. And the chair and the deputy chair have to be split between the genders as well. Um, and they make up um, you know, a key advisory component in each jurisdiction, um, like each state or territory, you know, they negotiate with the state or territory governments and then nationally. Um, so I think that there's room for um, organisations like that and the regional authorities um, get a community development fund and an economic development fund, and they decide where to spend the money. And I think that organisations, uh, you know, just the accountability requirements are absolutely ridiculous. I think incorporation under ASIC rather than under the CATSI Act, I think that um, organisations should provide one annual report which includes their audited financial statements per year to acquit their use of their funds for that 12 months. But at the end of their triennial funding, they produce a, you know, towards achieving outcomes report on the success of each of the components that they're funded for. And they do that um, in the first instance to the regional authorities and the regional authorities compile a report to the Parliament of Australia. So I'm a bit... I'd scrap You'd the whole scrap lot. scrap it completely. Oh, okay. yes. Jeff, you've raised concerns about the strategy not once but twice and quite a lot of them. You've also got a lot of experience working within government. Um, you've also got a lot of experience working for community organisations like Congress and the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. Listening to what Pat says, what are sort of some of the elements that you think should be guiding funding for Indigenous organisations or Indigenous issues? I mean, the principles Pat's just, just put forward is uh, how Congress operates. But the issue of going back to having a re- regional strategy, having regional authorities is an important one. 
I mean, the government talks about having decision-making close to the ground, but the minister crows about making every decision himself. Mm. He must be, I mean, he gets around a lot. But on those issues, I think it has to go back to actually having a regional plan which actually un underpins the allocation of resources to actually meet the needs of the communities, not what the minister thinks are the needs. Mm. Mm. I mean, this, this, is, this is an epiphany on this issue about having where, where the funding should be funnelled to, and it doesn't, doesn't suit. Blanket policy never worked and never will. Yeah. Well, I think we've never experienced such paternalistic regime as we have since the Abbott government um, in particular. Mm. But it's been heading that way for some time, and I just despair. Well, on ABC Local Radio, Radio Australia and Podcast, this is Speaking Out, and I'm Larissa Berrett, and my guests this evening are Pat Turner, Philippa McDermott and Jeff Scott. Now, Jeff... Also during the week, there was a bit of coverage of the fact that um, your organisation, the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, which is the national representative body for Indigenous people in Australia, had finally, I guess, um, twisted the Prime Minister's arm to finally meet with you. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's taken so long for the Prime Minister to meet with you and what you're now expecting might come out of this meeting? Well... <coughs> We thought we were going to do it in a new regime with a new Prime Minister, but we got more of the same. Mm. On, the, on the week he was actually came to office, he, he's got, his office gave an undertaking to meet with us. It was last September. We're patient, but <laughs> Not that there, patient. There, there's a limit. <laughs> and then there was a bit of a campaign and people asking, and then passing questions and general issues. The Prime Minister chooses to meet with his anointed few, mm. and it's the IAC and his little group there. And linking it back, the IAC endorsed mm. the IAS. They endorsed this catastrophic policy stuff up and should be held to account for it. These anointed few are complicit in the coalition and their, their, their ideology and tactics. Now, in a democracy, the, uh, the Commonwealth governments are a democracy, they're elected, but they choose not to look at the elected people for, for Indigenous Australia. That's something I can't comprehend. I'm sure the Prime Minister can, can give us an answer on that one. But we're trying to meet with him soon. But the point is, we don't disagree on what the issues are. We have varying disagreements and points of view on what, what the solutions are. But we've got to work together on this and not just pick, pick a few that will anoint the government. And that's what we've had to date, and it's been a disaster. But they're, they're, I agree. They're, they're giving legitimacy mm. to these programs, and they've got to start talking to people both at a regional level and a national level to put things together. There's no overall national policy. There is, there is no process about how this all hangs together. Pat, but you've also run, run a national ran out sick when it was uh, appointed, and then you ran it through that era where it became elected. What are your reflections on the importance of an elected representative body as opposed to an appointed one? And then I'll come to you, Philippa, about that same question. Oh, I think it's essential. Um, but I would have, you know, the gender balance fifty fifty, um, which I asked for when we were negotiating, you know, with the minister who set ATSIC up, that was Jerry Hand at the time, I said you should have 50-50 men and women. You know, that's the only thing you should stipulate on the elected, um, in the elected arm, the regional councils and the board. And, um, you know, he was a bit macho and said, oh, you know, let the people decide. Well, you know what the men are like. They just muscle in and the women sit back and do all the work, you know. Do you have any comments about that, Jeff? Um, I'm sure he'd agree with me. Um, given our experience there, mm. if we'd had more women, I'm sure we would have had more uh, sensible um, debates. 
Now, what I'm saying about this structure is to negotiate the funding and negotiate the and to distribute the money according to regional plans and so on and so forth. Um, ATSIC elected arm, you know, it took a while to settle down, but by God, what they've had ever since has been an absolute bloody disaster. And, you know, I don't think you can really... I think we need to revert to a regional authorities which give them yes. more power. And I understand that, talking about closing the gap, that the data available from the Torres Straits shows that there's been market improvements in the Torres Straits because they have got regional control. They have It's all done under the auspices of the regional authority and their improvements is much higher than any other area. Mm. So, you know, if that's not evidence, I don't know what is. There's plenty of evidence that that sort of involvement of Indigenous people in policy and program delivery at that level does achieve results. Philippa, you've worked within the bureaucracy. You worked at ATSIC, actually. Um, what are your thoughts about the role of a national representative body? Well, I, I totally agree with a, a regional model, but I just have to get back to um, Jeff's point, and I did want to say that I think, Jeff, part of the problem has been um, the Congress's previous lack of, um, I suppose, um, l lack of... Uh, consultation you might call it or even engagement like you know really in the a couple of the past the past um you know uh um bodies or the the, the past um chair and co-chairs you know really weren't engaged i didn't feel were engaged enough to um to be able to bring that agenda forward you know hopefully with the new congress now that they'll be able to you know they'll be a lot more engaged and be able to bring that message forward but really previously the past you know in my opinion the past congresses weren't engaged enough so maybe that's why they haven't you know they haven't sort of been setting the agenda as much as they they may they they might have been able to but um on the regional um on the idea of regional funding and regional bodies i think it's also this short term funding cycle that we're just continually you know um thrown into the mix i mean we need long term planning and i think we feel like a broken record saying this and i think we would all be in the same boat but we need like a 10 year or a 20 year plan on you know uh, all of all of our issues whether it's justice or health or what have you i mean the maori um mob have done that and in some areas in um canada they've done that and had that long term planning you know and it's bipartisan type of you know proposition and it's you know it, i don't think it's impossible to you know to think that we could do that but until we actually you know stop this short-term funding cycle we're never going to get anywhere so you know i mean i think it takes a bit of vision to be looking at long-term planning too and i know that we even at atsic and before atsic we were talking about that kind of stuff mm. jeff um you when you were CEO of ATSIC, as I'm sure Pat did, took a lot of flack about what ATSIC did and didn't do, and you were obviously getting that about Congress. Congress is in the very difficult position now of looking at the fact that its funding's getting cut. Can you just tell us what the future is, what, what Congress is planning to do to navigate its way forward? Well, again, Congress has tried to put its foot forward. I'm, sort of, I'm sure you agree with IOC with that comment. but you know. Congress is trying to actually put those issues forward. They're mm. actually trying to actually... And until the government starts talking to Indigenous Australia, it, it won't make any progress here. And again, those who support the process whereby you actually talk to those who are appointed and anointed, uh, we won't get anywhere. And Congress is trying to actually put the position forward. We've been back to the Prime Minister's office trying to talk to them about it, but they just won't talk. It doesn't matter what policy you put up and how good you consult. They have an ideology about, and the Howard government did it with the, the, 
the National Indigenous Committee, and this government's doing it. It's their ideology, but they, they don't think that Aboriginal people should deserve to have their elected armour. Their elected people actually have a voice and uh, contribute. Well, we've been talking a bit about what's going wrong. Um, I noticed in the uh, news this week, there were with the Queensland elections last week, <laughs> there were a large number of donkey votes, with voters going to all the trouble of putting an alternative name on the ballot with a little box and then ticking it. And uh, I was very pleased to see that Jonathan Thurston got a few votes. Me too. <laughs> so did Kanye West and Jimi Hendrix. Notice they're all black. And I just thought I would finish the show off tonight by asking each of you if you... Um, uh, with the federal election coming up, who you would take the time to add to the ballot paper? Philippa, who would you add? Well, I was going to add my grandmother, um, who was the queen of... Well, if I thought we might have been talking about Queensland, who was the queen of Anala in Queensland, but sadly she's passed away. But I think I'd probably still vote for her. She'd do a better job um, from up there than half the people down here. Well, I was going to put Arnie Pat Turner on the ballot because <laughs> I think she'll go in and sort them out. But who would you put, Arnie Pat? Oh, my goodness. I think I need someone like Shea Guevara or something. <laughs> Another dead person. <laughs> Another dead person. The cynicism. Now, mm. surely, Jeff, you won't give us a cynical answer? Oh, oh <laughs> no. I'd probably put any clown would do. It'd be better than what we have. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you for an amazing panel. My guests, Pat Turner, who is an extraordinary leader within the Alice Springs community, uh, senior public servant, sort of retired, it's XAT6 CEO, inaugural chair of NITV, never stops. No, no. CEO. <laughs> Sorry, yes, I was the chair, you were the yes. CEO. Um, and Jeff Scott, who is the um, CEO of the Australia's National Congress of First Peoples and um, was also XAT6 CEO, ex-CEO of the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. And Philippa McDermott, who... Um, Lots of things you've done too, from journalists. <laughs> no CEOs. Yes, oh, I was actually for a small. Curry Radio, etc., yep, etc. Et right. Couldn't have had a better panel to talk about the issues tonight. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, thank Larissa. you, Larissa. This is speaking out. That's the key to it all: keeping connected to country. On ABC Local Radio. On ABC Local Radio, Radio Australia, and podcast. This is speaking out, and I'm Larissa Berendt. It's a case that should have shocked Australia a young Aboriginal woman taken into a lock-up for the non-payment of fines after the police were called to a domestic violence incident in which she was the victim. An inquest into Ms Dew's death was finalised this week, but it's been a sobering reminder that Aboriginal people continue to die in custody despite the Royal Commission 25 years ago. Testimony given to the inquest this week by police officers present during Ms Dew's incarceration revealed a disturbing lack of compassion in their treatment of her. George Newhouse is a human rights lawyer who's been following the inquest on behalf of the Western Australia Deaths in Custody Watch Committee. We'll hear from him shortly, but first, I recently had the privilege of speaking with Ms Dew's grandmother, Carol Rowe, and she just won't rest until justice is served. Yes, because I've got to stand and fight for justice, which we all need. We all need to stand on this plate and fight for our kids. No more of this um, death in custody or anywhere. So, Carol, I think it's important that everybody remembers that what we're talking about here is a very beautiful young woman. Can you just share with us a few of your thoughts about what kind of woman Ms Dew was? I've got three um, two sisters and three brothers, and she loved and adored them brothers and sisters, and her elder sister, Sharona, her children. 
and um, she adored them. Sharona gave birth, Jalika took over the mother role, and the kids call, used to call her Mummy Leaky. Yes, and the baby sister, she adored her and worshipped the ground that everybody, kids, all our family walked walked on. She was so loving, caring. Yes. Carol, I think one of the really distressing things about this case is, um, for those of us who've been watching it, is that you actually did try and make inquiries about your granddaughter while she was in custody. And I was just wondering if you could share with us the steps that you proactively took to try and find out what was happening uh, to your girl. Well, I rang the South Headland lockup and I asked them, how did how'd Jalika go last night, you know, and how long she's going to be there? They said only one or two days, but I think I recall just one day paying that fine. And I started off asking, how much was it? And it was told, I was told $1,000. Read the papers, it's going up to 3500 They... She's getting charged more and more when she's passed on. I don't know how they work the system, I tell you. After this terrible thing happened, um, what sort of uh, information did you get from officials? Were they good in answering your questions and telling you what was going on? The officials, they never told me nothing. When Jalika passed away... The police never rang me to tell that she passed on, and it was in the cell, in the cell she died, not in the hospital. And the hospital, no, no notification from the hospital to say, well, you have lost your granddaughter. No, the police have, and the hospital never even told me. My cousin out on the street rang and told me. And I don't know about her dad, who told her or what, you know? So they cover, trying to cover up everything. I'm Larissa Berendt, you're listening to Speaking Out, and my very special guest this evening is Carol Rowe. Um, Aunty Carol, you've, you've been coming to the inquest every day. It can't be easy. What are you hoping will come out of this part of the process? I want the truth and the justice. We need that for everybody. It's gone worldwide and everybody's listening. Um, no more, we can't call the police saying, the hospital saying, they cannot recall this and cannot recall that. Okay, stand up there and be a man and answer the truth. It's just wondering, it's, it's a, been a, you know, a very difficult journey for you. I just wonder, I think one of the other tragic things is, you know, we do have our mob die in custody all the time. And I just was wondering, with everything you've been through and what you've learnt about the system now, if there was another grandmother or another mother who had to go through what you were going through now, what would your advice be to them? You keep fighting, fighting, and I'll stand on the plate with you and help you too. We need all to pull together, all us blackfellas, come on. We all got to stop this death and custody on the street, anywhere they kill our kids. Let's all stand on that plate and pull together. I was just wondering, the, the justice system does its thing, um, processes go on. At the end of the day, you've lost someone very dear to you and that will never go away. How would you like people to remember Miss Do? She never had time to travel. She always wanted to travel in her life. 
but she grew wings and flied all over the world with her passing. Um, she won't be forgotten. She'll go down. She's certainly become a, a symbol of, of what needs to change. And just finally, having watched you be such a strong advocate for her, such a strong fighter for justice, and turning up every day to make sure people know you're there and watching them while they're giving answers takes a lot of strength. And I was just wondering, where do you get it from? How do you say stay strong? My granddaughter made me strong the day I had to change her nappies and all that. And buried her made me more stronger and stronger and it ripped my heart out. But I will be there standing up for my nanny. Carol Rowe, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege having you on the show this evening. And I'm sure everyone listening will join me in wishing you all the best and strength as you fight for justice. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening out there. And let's all stand on that plate together and beat these woodballers. Okay? Come on, my people. We all need one another. Thank you. Ms Dew's grandmother, Carol Rowe, last week at the coronial inquest in Perth. I also spoke with lawyer George Newhouse, representing the WA Deaths in Custody Watch Committee. George, can you just explain for people who might not be familiar with the process what the role of the coronial inquest is? Well, the coroner has two roles. First of all, to find the cause of death. But in cases of deaths in custody, the coroner has an additional role, which is to comment on the treatment and care of the detainee or prisoner before they died. And you've been watching this case very closely. What are some of the details that have been emerging? Um, The death of Miss Dew is one of the most tragic cases I've come across. A 22-year-old woman who was arrested on a fine default and ended up in police custody with massive um, infections Those infections caused her an incredible amount of pain. And both police and medical and uh, nursing staff seemed to make a number of assumptions about Miss Do that suggested she was faking. And after 40 hours in the lockup, she passed away in the most tragic circumstances. What are the sorts of things that you hope might come out of a coronial inquest like this? Coronial inquests uh, give the community the opportunity to uh, see what actually goes on in prisons and in police lockups. And I think what, what's important and what the family would like to come out of uh, this case is that, uh, first of all, finder faulters are not locked up in or, or imprisoned because essentially that criminalises poverty. And they'd like to make sure that no one ever goes through the pain and suffering and is ignored in the way that Miss Do was ever again. There's a lot of discussion about how at different stages of the criminal justice system Indigenous people get um, you know, uh, discriminatory treatment. We see that play out in over-representation numbers. We see it with the number of high-profile deaths in custody, not just Miss Do, but you think of somebody like Mr Ward. What are your observations about this, this part of the process, the coronial process for Aboriginal people? Well, sadly, um, the coronial process continues um, the frustration of uh, Indigenous Australians. Um, There are three phases of a coronial process. There's the investigation, there's the hearing, and then there's the findings. 
ultimately, um, my experience is that that most people get very little information on the during the investigation stage, which can take up to two years before uh, an inquest comes to hearing, and that's incredibly frustrating and unsatisfying to the family because they're virtually told nothing uh, about the case until quite close to the hearing. During the hearing. It's a formal legal procedure, which is quite alienating for many uh, Indigenous Australians. And finally, to add insult to the injury, um, when there are findings made, often they're ignored by governments. So the whole process is intensely frustrating and can create anger in many families who've, who've, whose children and relatives have died in these awful circumstances. George Newhouse, thank you for taking time out of the inquest to have a chat with us on Speaking Out. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking Out. Keep that tradition going and uh, share it on to the younger generation. The world from an Indigenous perspective. On ABC Local Radio. I'm Larissa Berendt. Join the conversation online. Facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. Wiradjuri woman and respected elder, Auntie Elsie Heiss, has been a powerful voice in our community on topics such as Aboriginal spirituality, the stolen generation, reconciliation and justice for Aboriginal people. We're thrilled to have her as our guest this evening. Auntie, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you, Larissa. Now, you've been an active member of the Aboriginal Catholic Ministry for the last 25 years. Why has it been such a big part of your life? been a big part of my life because I was born an Aboriginal into the Wiradjuri Nation but baptised Catholic. So all my life these two great influences have been in my life. I believe that it was a hard road because Aboriginal Catholics in those days were not recognised within the church. They weren't recognised within the church. It wasn't as if the priests and nuns came to the mission and said who's Catholic here let's take them and take them and have them baptised or take them to church. No, that wasn't, that wasn't allowed anyway. The manager on the mission probably wouldn't allow it. Mm. But my mother would sneak us to Mass in town. We would go down there bare feet to the church, a couple of miles to Mass, and we would go to church and sit in the back of the church. My mother had us all baptised. My father was with her. We were all baptised at St Raphael's in Cara, all the kids, and... We all embraced the Catholic faith. So I think it, I think it was that great influence of my mum. My mum was stolen generation. She was taken at the age of five and uh, taken to Cootamundra, then to a Catholic home when she was 11 and raised by the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. So here's a young person at the age of 11 not having any identity or heritage or understanding of where she's come from embracing Catholicism. That was her strength. That was her, the people in there were, that took care of her. And so she, when my mother went out to service at the age of, what, 16, she was sent to Catholic homes, people with, that had big Catholic families to look after. So she was in service. So all her life was Catholicism. On my father's side, this is where the spiritual side comes in, my father was an initiated man who was full of spirituality and spirit stories and 
cultural. He was very cultural. Like he would take us in the bush and teach us all about things like how to find the witchetty grubs in the trees and how to cook them. First of all, we thought, oh, I can't swallow that. <laughs> There's no way I could swallow that. But he said, you don't even know till you taste it. And they tasted like scrambled eggs, really. Mm. And these are the things we need to learn for our grassroots level. Living in camps on the banks of the Murrumbidgee River with all the other Aboriginal families around you and only our close relatives were Catholic. Mm. But... It doesn't matter what religion you were. It was that you were all Aboriginal, you all lived together, you shared what you had and you embraced your culture. Mm. And at the same time, when we lived on the mission, before we moved to the camps, because we got off the mission, it was every Friday my mum closing the wooden windows and doing the rosary, saying the rosary together. How precious was those moments It was just like as if we were embracing God at that moment and our culture and our whole existence of our ancestors, that they were all speaking to us. So it was any wonder we grew up with that great love for Catholicism as well as our Aboriginality. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guest on Speaking Out this evening is Auntie Elsie Heiss from the Aboriginal Catholic Ministry. Auntie, what do you see the role of the church is as we, as we move forward into the future as a community? In the last two to three decades, the church has come a long way supporting Aboriginal Catholic people or Aboriginal people per se. They have been a great support. But I think that the future is that we need to keep it strong. Our identity is the most important thing in our lives. No one can take that away from us. Never let go of your identity. Hang on with both hands. Catholicism is another part of your life. So I think we're seeing it happening in the, in the sense that where is it going to be? I don't know. I see some down movements in the Catholic, Catholic faith. I think a lot of, are going another direction. Not just Catholics. They're going away from any religion. It may be the new age, maybe the new time. They are not embracing any faith or religion. And I think through that they're losing their spirituality. You know that? I think they're losing the spiritual side of the people because, as Boniface said, we may not have had a lot of material goods, but we were full of spiritual goods. And while ever you embrace spirituality, you're embracing that spiritual side of your, who you are. And that gives you your identity, your assurance, and who you are. Mm. And I think if you, if you lose your spirituality, that's what, what that makes you. And I think that through Catholicism, that we can embrace spirituality because remember... No one believed that we were spiritual people. Who believed that? If I had said that 30 years ago, people would have looked at me and laughed and said, spiritual? Well, what sort of spirit? You Aboriginals find it at the bottom of a bottle. Mm-hmm. That's how, how they would speak to us. But we need as Aboriginals to embrace our spirituality. It's not about so much about religion, but embracing our spirituality and finding that, that root there that's there. And saying that gives me, that makes me who I am. Mm. 
Well, Auntie, just finally, and perhaps this is a really great way to explain how Aboriginal spirituality and Catholicism, your religion, merges together. You're going to share a prayer with us. Yes, I would love to. by an Aboriginal person. It's, yeah, Lenore Parker, and she was an Anglican minister. And I, be, I believe this, at this time of the year, is a very beautiful spiritual prayer. And it's called God of the Holy Dreaming. God of the Holy Dreaming, great creator spirit, from the dawn of creation you have given your children good things of Mother Earth. You spoke and the gum trees grew. In the desert and dense forest, in the cities, at the water's edge, creation sings your praise. Your presence endures as the rock at the heart of our land. When Jesus hung on the tree, you heard the cries of your wounded, your people, and became one with your wounded ones, the convicts, the hunted, and the dispossessed. The sunrise of your sun coloured the earth anew and bathed it in glorious hope. In Jesus we have reconciled to you, to each other, and to your whole creation. Lead us on, Great Spirit, as we gather at this special place, located on land where ancestors of long ago gathered for work, play and praise. Enable us to walk together in trust from the hurt of the past into the full day which is dawned in Jesus Christ. Amen. Auntie Elsie Heiss, thank you so much for being with us this evening and for being so generous with what you've had to share with us. Thank you very much, Larissa. I enjoyed being here. Well, that's the program for this week. Join us next week for more news, views and interviews from Indigenous Australia. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thanks for joining us on Speaking Out. Have a safe and sound Easter. See you next time. Miss something from tonight's show or want to listen again online? Grab the podcast at abc.net.au slash speakingout. 